We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Our culture is so wildly different than it was in 2017. It's worth actually talking about. I mean, it's it's like there it is very, 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 very different. We there's a lot to be gained right now from a certain kind of right of center influencer in pretending that um, you know the left still has this very strong control over culture to the point where you can't speak your mind and whatnot. I myself feel like you know you have something to lose by giving that talking point up. I ran a conference called Hereticon. Like it's not so dangerous to say interesting things anymore. Um, and in 2017, it really was. I think we were right at the edge with Hereticon. Like, I, I mean, I, I want the idea for it. I, I, it was 2019, right? Like we were supposed to do it March of 2020. That would have been still dangerous. I was getting called a Nazi when I, when I wrote the essay for it by Neil Dash. Like I will never forget the insanity of that. 2020, it was January, 2022. It's like, so it's end of 2021. We're getting ready. And I think that was like the last moment you could really do something like that. And then from that point on, I really feel like we're, at least in tech, I feel like we are certainly, I don't know that we're winning the culture of tech, but there's room for us to exist and it's fine. Antonio, are you, when did you get canceled? What, what month? I mean, which of the many times? Um, I guess the Apple thing was 2020, I think. I'm not sure. I think it was that. But summer. like October, I wrote November, about it. was it post-election? Uh, feels like it was late. No, uh, it was like May, June, May, June. It was early summer because I remember I left branch <laughs> in 2021. No, it was 2021, actually. It was spring of 2021. It, it just has some vibes of like the end of the Roman Empire or whatever. And like, you know, like Trump is getting kicked out of the office and, and like you're getting into an environment where you're not going to get canceled. And you somehow got whacked with the sword <laughs> right at the end. Yeah. And where's the like, flailing last bit of cancellation <laughs> smacked Antonio on the way out? It's 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 like the last guy to die of a disease before the vaccine arrives, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. the, you're that you're that sucker who who died of whatever it was typhus in the Alaskan village before the Iditarod sled showed up with the fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, wait a second. How, how is your camera getting worse? I thought I thought you were like upgrading your situation. It's like we we we're back to Somali pirate. I, I'm, I'm sure the comments are going to be like, yeah, like Eric looks like he's back to to raiding ships off of the Gulf of Aden or whatever. <laughs> the mic is perfect though. One one, one thing at a, at, a, at a time. I got to get his. Yeah. Table so for down. for the people listening, Eric, you know, sounding smooth, but for the people watching, it's like kind of burning your eyes with bleach. <laughs> uh, how how do we get on the topic of uh, of families? Uh, my child uh, scratched my nose this morning, so I, I kind of look like I'm an MMA, MMA fighter, despite um, having no no ability to do any fighting whatsoever. Um, and then how'd you get from that to single moms? <laughs> Surrogacy. Yeah. I was like, how many are you having? And he's like, th- oh. th- three is the plan eventually, but I don't know if I should, should I be blowing up all these things on, because we're recording now. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's fine. I mean, I, I think yeah, it's, it's a complex topic of like, how, how do you navigate you know, if you have natural born children and, and, you know, a number of them, and then it's like, you want another one, like you go to surrogacy. It's like, how does the dynamic play with the, the kids? Maybe I'm overthinking that. Um, 
yeah, and then I think just generally surrogacy as a topic in general, I think we were talking about is, and I think Solana and I are somewhat on the same page in the sense that like, we think it's actually a good thing. Like my, my view is like more kids are better and we should be doing things society policy-wise to increase the number of children. So uh, Antonio, Antonio can weigh in on children. He, he has plenty. So. I'm the last. I'm the last guy you want to ask about children. <laughs> um, speaking of MMA, I'm going to try jujitsu uh, with a few friends, uh, inspired by Elon didn't, checking out. I guess. Wait, hold on. Didn't you? Didn't you like blow out your knee last year playing basketball? I, I tore my Achilles, but apparently, um, you know, uh, it's easy on the Achilles. <laughs> Who's your okay. dream fight? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I got to think about that. Do you guys have any dream uh, dream fights in, at the moment? I can think of a few startup competitors I want to beat the shit out of. <laughs> I kind of want to fight. No, I don't. You know what? I don't want to say his name because the second I, I feel like he's just going to make him like I don't want him to even know that I think about him. So that yeah. I, there is a person I have in mind who I would love to fight, yeah. but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think um, I think the only way I want to do any fighting is I would want to do the Zuck routine where I spend like three years training yeah. silently and then challenge people publicly <laughs> to a fight. Um, that 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 seems to be the the way to get the the competitor to not want to fight you. Although I mean, look, I you know there was an attempt to show up to the house. Like I think this drama isn't going to go away anytime soon. Is that real? I can never tell what's real. I, I I just my default assumption online now is just that nothing that I'm reading is real. It's all just people larping. The only one million people that actually exist in the world larping on Twitter. <laughs> Shall we get into it? Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. this big interview. Like, yep. maybe give us the inside uh, scoop. It's like, how did this come to be? Mike, you, know you, I mean? you, broke, you broke the internet with Peter Thiel interview for people who haven't yet seen it. Yeah, Mike, give us the give us a breakdown. All right, so uh, I've known Peter for fifteen years. About um, he is, you know, a friend. I work for him. I, I'd say I, I, he's mostly. I think probably the. He's a mentor and he met, I was very young when I met him and he's given me every opportunity I have. And it's this like, he's this very central figure in my life and I've avoided doing stuff with him because it just feels, it like makes it all dirty somehow. When you like, when you're doing something, like I care about him a lot and I care about our like working history a lot. And so to bring it to the internet and to do like some interview with him or whatever, I've just, I've dragged my feet for a long time. Um, because I just didn't want to deal with the comments and things like this. But, uh, but finally, I mean, the diversity myth is a book that he wrote in the early to the mid nineties. It was 1995, I believe with David Sachs and, uh, it's coming up on 30 years and there's this interesting thing. So when I first met him, he hadn't yet written zero to one. When I came on at founders fund, uh, it was to build a class of his at Stanford out called CS 183. That would become zero to one, which is the book that he's known for. Um, at the time that I met him, he had this book that nobody ever talked about, including him. Uh, it, it didn't come up in interviews. It didn't come up in even there were, I, I lived in New York, so not many people knew him at that time. But in San Francisco, when I moved out, I mean, everybody knew who Peter was and they had not read the diversity myth. That was not a thing that anybody cared about. It was about the sort of uh, deranged politics of the Stanford campus in the late 80s and the early 90s. And uh, I mean, really what it was was wokeness before we had that word wokeness. What happened though, after the mid nineties was it all kind of went away. And, uh, and that kind of straight up through, I went to college, um, I graduated in 2007 
and in Boston. So like very liberal town, uh, none of that stuff, like the political correctness and whatnot, like you could talk about all sorts of crazy stuff um, when I was in college. And so by the time that I met Peter in say 2009, I read his book. Um, he had never recommended that I go and read it. I just found it online. I read it. One of our coffees, I brought it up and he was sort of like embarrassed about, about it. And, it, and I think it was because, and we've talked about it since, um, the embarrassment surrounding it. And, he, and he's confirmed that I was, my assumption was correct. He just felt that he got the premise wrong. He felt like he had sort of made um, a mountain out of a molehill and uh, you know, he's, he was nut picking and throwing fruit basically at the dumbest people alive. And yeah, it was funny you to make fun of the crazy campus stuff, but none of it really mattered. And his basic, his premise, one of his premises, which is like, this stuff was actually very important. What was happening on the Stanford campus, this sort of deranged leftism, anti-Western civilization, identitarianism, uh, the quotas and all of this, like he, that was going to take over everything. That was gonna be this huge, uh, important movement in the country. And so by 2009, that seemed really not the case. I go on to work with Peter, um, I think in 2011, end of 2011, I started working at Founders Fund when I went to go work at his class. And within a couple of years, you know, maybe like two, three years, you start seeing the first inkling of what would become like uh, the craziest wave of political correctness in American history. I mean, it, the stuff goes on to take over every institution in the entire country. And so looking back now in 2023, um, he looks like, Peter looks like Nostradamus. Like he's the only book that has correctly predicted the next 10 years of culture in America. And um, and so we thought, let's just do a retrospective on it. And uh, and he had, he had actually already been, and he'd been working on, he'd been thinking about this himself. Um, so we got together and we did an interview, uh, just sort of looking back on uh, on diversity myth thirty years later. And I would say right out of the gate, before you know, we can take this in a, this uh, discussion wherever you guys want. But just I guess last thought on it is just like I, what I think is pretty interesting is I I went in thinking okay, you know, he was embarrassed fifteen years ago when I brought up the book, and he was. And when I brought it up over coffee, it was like ah, oh, he didn't really want to talk about it, and he tried to sort of move it along. He's like, I would do things very differently now, but I mean, I don't, I don't think I was wrong, but blah blah blah. I expected him to be like, I'm vindicated. Like I'm right about everything, like knocked it out of the park. And he wanted to, I thought he would do like a victory lap or something. And there was some of that when we first, before the interview, when we first started talking about this again. And, um, you know, he, he's like, yeah, sure. I was correct about a lot, but he felt strongly that it was like, the phrase he uses was like, he was not even wrong. Like he was right about a lot of stuff, but he was not even wrong about the most important things, which are all the things that we weren't paying attention to while we were paying attention to the stupid culture war stuff. And kind of, we break the interview down. It's like four sections, uh, four big buckets of sort of broad Western or stagnation across the West and especially in America, which would be um, sort of science, technology a little bit, um, economics, religion, and then finally politics, um, these like broad spaces where we've really stagnated. And like that became sort of the substance of, of our, of our discussion. Can I, and can I just comment on that? A couple things. One, Peter obviously feels so strongly, or I don't know what spurred his revisiting of the diversity myth, but he also gave a speech that turned into a post at the new criterion that I think is also very good. And, um, I'm, I myself am writing kind of a response to that for tablet magazine right now, but I, I was interesting that he struck some of the same tropes in that piece, but just to give Peter, uh, Peter Thiel, even more credit, 
um, you know, I was having kind of this, I was at Berkeley shortly after the time he was at Stanford and I had kind of the same ideas because of course at Berkeley, all these same strains of leftist thought were there or even more. And I'm like, man, these people sound like a bunch of militant idiots, but like they're never going to run even like a hot dog stand, much less anything else. And then you, one day, 20 days later, you wake up and they're running everything, right? Because people kind of forget that actually the U.S. was kind of conservative for a while. You had the Bush years. You had uh, uh, John Yu, who was writing the, the, the Guantanamo Abu Ghraib memos, was at Berkeley, right? Like the, the political zeitgeist was very different. And this was kind of a weird niche extreme thing. And to see it taking over all of society was, I think, extraordinarily appreciated. I also, I really wonder about, because I, I don't have much of a memory of like 1999, other than I remember seeing The Matrix. I was like in my early, I might've been, was I like uh, 14, I think then. So like, I wasn't really paying attention to politics stuff. I wonder what college campuses were around then because 2001, you have, you have September 11th. And I think that maybe that is what kept a lot of this shit out for a while. Like it just seems so serious that no one really had patience for the other stuff, maybe, but I, I just I, I wish that I I could go to a college campus, maybe in the year two thousand, and just see what that was like before before the towers came down. It, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if we have kind of a, 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 a hypothesis, maybe what you just said is it on why it sort of came and you know receded and then surged back. Because if we have some sort of hypothesis, we can also ask you know what would cause it to surge back again. Certainly, it feels like the internet, like social media, as a um, as a as a distributive or a channel of distribution for this, the, the ideas seems pretty powerful. And then also distance from a real enemy maybe seems really powerful. Like you're you're really far. But then again, it, the first wave of it happened while Soviet Union was still like alive and well. So I, yeah, I don't know. I I mean the, the other thing to remember is that you realize the the. The American establishment center left was totally in favor of the global war on terrorism. The, the New York Times completely lined up behind the, the Afghan and, and Iraq wars. Berkeley did not. But again, it was an extreme point. I remember shortly after 9-11, the Berkeley City Council passed some resolution against the Afghanistan war or something, which can you imagine a little college campus pa passing international resolutions? But, but Berkeley, crazy Berkeley would do that. But the rest of the mainstream left didn't, right, And at all. And so I think things were just, it, it, was, it, was, it was a very different vibe back then, I guess. Yeah, I, but like you could also just trace it like Obama years, you, you kind of have the, the right people in power, people are feeling good, like, you know, your first black president. And then you kind of worm your way into 2014, where you're kind of the end of the Obama presidency, but you have Ferguson, you're what when is when is Gamergate? Like is Gamergate 2014 era? It's like the, the social media is finally starting to pick up and, and like yeah. the, the kind of like very online disease of the reporters and, and in, a, in a world where their job security is, is way lower, like media is kind of getting crushed by the growth of all of these, these social media platforms. That, that, that concoction yeah. feels like the, the kind of like growth vector for a lot of these ideas to come raging back. The idea of America as a white supremacist country like it was 2012 or 2013 the first time that I saw that. And I remember being like, that's fucking crazy. Like, like what a crazy person would say something so extreme. Like, like that's just a wild, crazy person online. And, but that was the, yeah, that was the beginning of, of this stuff. And it was like, it was super niche. It was, you would see it on, on uh, I, I wrote for a blog called thought catalog back then. Now it's just like clickbait farm. But, um, but back then it was like still at 2012, it had, I, I thought there were some interesting writers there and, uh, and you would, in the comment section, you know, I, I would see a lot of this stuff. And um, I remember warning even people on at Founders Fund. I was like, you know, 
things are getting crazy out there. Like on gender specifically, I'm like, you guys need to be really careful what you talk about. Like, I think, I think this thing is going to get like pretty dicey. And uh, I mean, I never saw the me two years coming, but um, yeah. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. It is crazy to think that 10 years, 15 years after Teal and Sachs write this book that they think they exaggerated it or you know made a mountain out of a molehill. I get why it surged back in 2012 or 2013, but what, what caused it to leave in the, or, or, or kind of calm down in the first place? Do you, do you, really, do you think it's mostly sort of 9-11 war on terror or, or is it something else? No, because I, I don't know. Because I, I, so I, I wish that we I had more of a memory of it. Peter was off campus. I've asked him and he he didn't really have a, much of an answer yeah. there because he wasn't on campus. Like, you got to remember, so, so him and David, right? Like, the funny thing about it is they wrote this book and then they went on to become two of the most important businessmen in like yeah. a, a generation, obviously yeah. definitely a generation. Like yeah. in my opinion, like, I mean, I'm a, yeah. I'm a fanboy of Peter. So I'm like, you know, he's up there all time <laughs> importance. Um, but like they had other shit going on in their life yeah. and like no one was asking them about the diversity myth. Uh, I, so I don't know. I have no sense of, of, of what it was. My sense, I, I, well, I do have some, I think that it was, weaker by the by like very very weak to the point where you know you know, people are rolling their eyes at the word politically correct by 2001 but it's just like after that like no one's even paying lip service to it i mean i had an english professor who like we were we did huckleberry finn we had a, a thing on american literature and like she, she was dropping the m-bomb white woman oh, dropping God. the n-bomb in class like in an intellectual way and i, I remember and she would encourage she, i don't know if, i don't want to say she encouraged us to do it but she was like <laughs> She oh, challenged yeah. us. She was like, well, why would you not? It's literature and blah, blah. And I'm like, God, looking back, I just, that is now unthinkable. That was in like 2006 wow. or seven, 2007. Like that, that's just, we were, we were in a very different place than, than we are today. And then we were in the early nineties, I think. Yeah. One other thing to think about is just like, people forget, because I think Trump is just clouding everyone's uh, model for things. But if, if you look at the, you know, the, the 24 years between uh, the book and Trump, 16 of the 24, you have a Democratic president, right? Yeah. Right. And and, yes. and in the case of Clinton, you have a president. Yeah, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, but the economy was just like on fire. So you have, you any any centrist Republican or whatever doesn't want to get into any version of a culture war is completely happy with the Democrat in office. And 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 anytime you have a Democrat in office, you, you, all this stuff tamps down. Yep. And, and I think the, with with Bush and and I, I would love actually a good treatment on Bush like uh you know Pearlstein who who's the, who's the guy who wrote the um, Nixon line Pearlstein 
it would be interesting to get actually uh, that level treatment of, of like he's done with Nixon or Reagan of, of the Bush two years because I wasn't old enough to like appreciate that. Maybe Antonio, you you have a little bit more appreciation, but I do feel like Iraq and Afghanistan sucked up a lot of the the kind of like progressive energy rather than identity politics. Yeah. Well, it's it's not only that they ignored kind of talking about it to focus on their business, but I mean, during the height of sort of you know, the 2015, 2016, I mean, Sachs had to apologize for it a few times, right? Yeah, fam- I think it was, might have even been to Kara Swisher that he did it, but it, <laughs> it was like very embarrassing. And I wish that he hadn't because I don't think that he should have. It, I don't think he did anything. David Sachs did nothing wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he certainly made up for it. Uh, but that's how we, that's how, that, that I think is more interesting in the light of like the question of whether or not we are in a vibe, sh- we've experienced a vibe shift now. And I think in tech, it's very clear that we have. It is. He would never apologize today for that book. We are just. Our culture is so wildly different than it was in 2017. It's. I think worth actually talking about. I mean, it's. It's like there. It is very, 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 very different. We. I think you have. There's a lot of. There's a lot to be gained right now from a certain kind of right of center influencer in pretending that. you know, the left still has this very strong control over culture to the point where you can't speak your mind and whatnot. I mean, I myself feel like, you know, you have something to lose by giving that talking point up. I ran a conference called Hereticon. Like I, this is like a big part of stuff that I've talked about for a while, but I genuinely do. And one of the difficulties, honestly, in doing another Hereticon, people always ask me, you know, are you doing it? When are you doing it? Can I come to it? And it's like, Yes, but it has to be very different. I have to find a way to to sort of reframe it and and find another interesting another interesting sort of thesis for the whole thing because I do believe the culture is significantly changed to the point where it's not so dangerous to say interesting th- things anymore. Um, and in 2017, it really was, and uh, and 2020, I mean, the summer of 2020, I'll never forget as long as I live. That was insane. Um, but I think we're we're kind of past it. Okay, you're saying Hereticon is mainstream. I think it's still. I think I got criticism in that vein, and I'm like, it's not. I think it's like a slight. It's worth considering. I think for the next one, it's like a note that's that's worth incorporating. Can I get my job at Apple back now? Then can I? Is that it? Are we over the little panic now? Now, if David Sachs doesn't have to apologize, can I just go get my little my little fang job now? <laughs> I think it's a really good point, and maybe you're right. Like, do, do you? So, do you think it's not over? Oh no, I, I think there. I think there probably has been a vibe shift. Um, but but by the way, I was going to recite. There, Kafka has a great line that the Messiah will arrive when he's no longer necessary. And so, like Hereticon, you know, <laughs> w- you know, uh, it, you know, if you need a Hereticon, something is deeply wrong. In some sense, you've arrived to the Messianic age if you don't need the Hereticon anymore. Um, <laughs> right. I think we were. By the way, we. I think we were right at the edge with Hereticon. Like, I, I mean, I, I want the idea for it. I, I, it was 2019, right? Like we were supposed to do it March of 2020. That would have been still dangerous. I was getting called a Nazi when I, when I wrote the essay for it by Neil Dash. Like I will never forget the insanity of that. 2020, it was January, 2022. It's like, so it's end of 2021. We're getting ready. And I think that was like the last moment you could really do something like that. And then from that point on, I really feel like we're at least in tech. I feel like we are certainly. I don't know that we're winning the culture of tech, but there's room for us to exist and it's fine. Antonio, are you, what, when did you get canceled? What, what month? I mean, which of the many times? Which, which time? um, 
I guess the Apple thing was 2020, I think. I'm not sure. I think it was that. But summer. like October, I wrote November, about it. was it post-election? Making Space for Monkeys was the name of the piece that I wrote about you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> nice. Um. <laughs> Wait, but Antonio, was it in the fall? Uh, feels like it was late. No, uh, it was like May, June, May, June. It was early summer because I remember I left branch in 2021. No, it was 2021. Actually, it was spring of 2021. It, it just has some vibes of like the end of the Roman empire or whatever. And like, you know, like Trump is getting kicked out of the office and, and like you're getting into an environment where you're not going to get canceled and you somehow got whacked with the sword <laughs> right at the end. Yeah, and, where's the like and, flailing and, last bit of cancellation it, smacked I, Antonio on the way out? It's 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 like the last guy to die of a disease before the vaccine arrives, right? Yeah, yeah. Like a, you're that you're that sucker who who died of whatever it was typhus in the Alaskan village before the Iditarod sled showed up with the fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to Dan's point too. I mean, Biden's in office, so. Like once, if Trump comes back, I mean, I'm, we're gonna look. I'm gonna look really dumb. If Trump comes back and this stuff goes back to like level nine, then it's fine. Dan has enough crypto. He'll make sure we get the nice, the nice house in the camps, and we'll get the good soup. We'll get the good potato. They'll, they'll scoop it from the bottom, so you get a little bit of the bacon in it, right? That's how it worked uh, in the camps. That's how it's gonna be, right? Oh my God. Yeah, I think there are enough antibodies now. Where? There's got to be, there's got to be, you know, I certainly my United Elite status is good for something in the gulags, right? Do, do, I, do, I, do I at least get the board first? Do I... Yeah, that's actually that they give the, the 1K United get the first plane out of the country when things are really going bad. Yeah, clearly, clearly. But no, I, I think one thing I would give credit, like I always love giving them credit for this, but I do think Substack materially changed the discourse because it took an elite set of people on both sides of the aisle. I mean, it gave a voice to, I think, like intellectual right wing people um, or right leaning people would maybe not call them right wing. But then the fact that Noah Smith and Matt Iglesias and all these other people are on Substack, I think brought back a little bit of like blog culture and a little bit more of like, there's something upstream of the blood sport arena that is Twitter. And um, I think in, in doing so, I don't know. Like, it feels like there's a little bit more nuance when, when something's happening. I mean, look at the, the recent Richard thing, right? Like the fact that he could just respond in a very long Substack to his own subscribers and not have to be intermediated by the media. Right. Imagine if Travis Kalanick had like a, a newsletter with 250,000 people. I mean, I guess he could have pushed it out on the Uber app, but like, you, you, you know, my side of the story type thing, it feels like that, that has become a lot more prevalent now where, whereas maybe, you know, in 2017, the media still had a big hold on what, what the narrative it was for the day. Yeah. Travis, I think it's, no good. Travis could have been like Palmer Lucky times 100 or something in terms of like the moral credibility that, that he would have with builders and people in the ecosystem if he kind of stood up for himself. Maybe only I don't, after a certain time. Uh, I just don't think it, like you, like you just said, he could have put it up on the app or something. And there were people, I, it was more, I think culture had to change before we were ready yeah. to, okay. to care about what he was going direct. This is the Me Too era. Like people didn't even, I mean, we were still at a point where, I mean, Richard apologized. That should be his death sentence in, 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 in keeping with the rules of these people. And yet, here he is and everything's fine. His book hasn't been, I, I thought for sure his publisher was going to drop his book. I mean, he's a confirmed white supremacist. Like it's, <laughs> it's what I, and I'm not saying I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm saying from their perspective, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it doesn't have the same pa- punch that it did, right? Like you, you call enough people white supremacists or Latinos and Asians white white supremacists, like you know Jews, neo Nazis. Like it, it, boys cry wolf. Like at a certain point, like those those monikers don't stick anymore. Yeah. Can I give it? Can, can I give an alternate theory? My best tweet, my favorite tweet about the Hananiya thing was somebody tweeted, "Oh, everyone discovers that Richard's actually ten percent worse than his public persona." Right? It's like, <laughs> did you not read everything else that he's published? Like, you're surprised? <laughs> like, yeah. I, to me, it was like, uh, okay, yeah, and <laughs> like, but, okay, <laughs> right? But, but like, why was it? Then why was it being published in the first place? It's just, I mean, if if we're still on the topic yeah. of five ship, this is just like more evidence that it, there's it doesn't make any sense that someone would have published him. It, it just, uh, I mean, I often wonder, um, so am I just getting content pushed to me because all these algorithms have gotten better and they know, like, I'm wondering if I've lost my sense of where culture actually is or, you know, or, or if the algorithms have just gotten better. And, and, and one recent one was not on, so Twitter is the one where I'm like, I really don't know that it might just be broken at this point And I can't tell what's culture and what's Twitter um, in a way that I used to feel like Twitter gave me a very accurate sense of what culture was. TikTok, though, and this is a very stupid topic that you guys are going to want to skip right past, I'm sure, but it's very important for this one point. So Snow White discourse. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah, obsessed with intellectual topics here, for sure. Um, <laughs> so Snow White, like, and I just was talking about this on my podcast. Um, so I don't, if you guys, we can move on if you want, but uh, I can go for hours. podcast as he talks about dwarves not wanting to be called dwarves. I could go for hours yeah, yeah, on yeah, Snow White discourse. This actress um, is crazy. <laughs> So the, the actress, universe, she comes out, criticizes the movie, universal hatred. Like, I've never seen it. And this is like, she's, she's criticizing the movie on feminist ground. She's like, it's not 1937 anymore. The prince isn't saving, is saving the princess. Snow White's going to go run for president. It's like a whole crazy, they got rid of the dwarves because the dwarves are fucking bigoted. Meanwhile, like, there are dwarvish actors who are like, wait a minute, this is like dwarvish erasure and we need jobs. And it's like, it's just where everyone is like, wait a minute, this is fucked up. Like we should be able to enjoy Snow White. And specifically I saw it, there was like a weird feminist critique on TikTok, which was um, from women, young women saying things along the lines of like, what's wrong with me wandering into the woods, speaking to talking animals and baking? Like that's very aspirational. And like, what? why can't I have that? dream and we're looking it's like millions of of likes on things like this and so that was one where i'm like well that should that feels like it's got to be the algorithm just like giving me shit that i want but i could not find a single response in favor of her even on feminist grounds and that feels like a major cultural shift did, did you see the um the babylon bees reaction to the whole fiasco the whole mm-hmm. headline that like uh prince charming uh, regrets kissing princess and waking her up because he gets immediately lectured. <laughs> yeah. So, Lana, the one thing I would say, there are two other things. One, I do actually, and this ties back to Peter, I do think the destruction of Gawker was a, um, that was destroying a major boss within the kind of woke industrial complex online, right? Like maybe less Gawker itself, but like Jezebel and some of the the kind of like mob mentality that it had the ability to froth up at that, you know, kind of like mid 2010s. And then I also do think, um, and I think this took off on Twitter, uh, uh, crypto Twitter early and, and, and has since I think spread to a lot of other categories, whether it's like the EA, um, AC people or, um, you know, FinTwit, but it's, it's a non-accounts, right? 
And like yeah. even your account, like is a great example where it's like you're not a face Twitter person. You're you're yeah. Ulysses S. Grant. Like I I think the shift in in kind of like the antibodies against the cancellation is like okay, I'm just gonna have an anon account, and like it might even be people know that you know that account exists, right? Like the, the like the most famous anon account in the mid 2010s was Startup L. Jackson. And then, like when Startup L. Jackson revealed who they were, that no one thought that they were funny anymore. And so it was like the the anon accounts that that have since come out and and have like proliferated, right? Like some of the teapot stuff, I think allows a lot of the kind of like discourse to be interesting because you can actually point out when the woke mob is being cringe or stupid, or and you have no fear of repercussion, right? And this yeah. is actually a biology point. It was like yeah. your social network supply chain. Is like that. That's that's how cancellation works. It's like how fast can I get to the the economic node that I can just then put pressure on and cancel you? And it's really hard to cancel a Roman statue or kind of like you know a mid journey version of Jeff Bezos, like you know going through the stars. Like that. That's that's like armor, and like you can now deal with these these kind of like woke mobs because they don't have any ability to put pressure on your economic engine. If Even anything, if Elon's Elon. paying them. And if you try to get canceled, you're just like increasing the the X earnings. <laughs> well, but yeah. let me let me comment on that. By the way, I, I never believe that PT was Startup Bill Jackson. I've met the guy in person. He's not nearly funny enough to have been that account. But that's a that's a whole separate that's a whole separate story. But you mentioned Teapot, which for those who don't know, TPOT, this part of Twitter, I think is an interesting concept. And it gets to this whole blocking thing with Elon last week, which I guess got canceled. They're not going to cancel blocking. But I, I've often wondered, as someone who I guess has had four different careers, like academia, publishing, tech, and in each of these, everyone thinks to the center of the world. Or if you live in Europe versus the US, and whatever your little community is, it always seems like it's the blinding everything to you, right? I'm curious, I'm, like, like Solana said, like I'm curious how much of it is real and how much of it, thanks to these block walls, we've, which I think is a good thing, by the way, we've actually walled off our our, our teapot, so to speak. And it, and actually, you know, Kara and all the rest of that crew is still out there massively influential. We've just kind of fractured social networks effectively. And we don't even know for, for all we know, we look like a bunch of fucking lame losers with this podcast, even though I get recognized at the blue bottle because of it. And somehow those two worlds coexist. I don't know. I for sure think that culture has changed a little like, like on, I think it's not as authoritarian as it, as it was broadly. Um, and I for sure think that Twitter specifically is no longer indicative of what's going on generally, but this TikTok stuff really throws me for a loop because it is, you know, super left wing. And yet you see these things that you never would have seen before. I see people talking about race in pretty nuanced ways on that app that I, that were not possible a few years ago. Um, and they're getting lots of likes, uh, I think there's some, I think there's a lot of the siloing thing that is happening, but I, I still think generally things are a little bit different. I mean, what is the last high profile cancellation? Someone who like fully lost everything for something shitty they said or did. I, I mean, the other thing don't forget was remember it was like two different people in Virginia, both Democrats. Like it was kind of the end of the me too era. And it was like, okay, this is like down the fairway, me too, like racist thing or whatever you should be canceled. And they were like, nah, but I, I've decided that I'm not canceled. And then they <laughs> didn't do anything about it. And so it's like, wait a second. So you're, you're canceling right-wing people, but then when, you know, the Lieutenant governor or the governor is doing something, uh, you know, free pass. So I think that that, that also reduces the, the power of it, right? Because then people see it for the farce that it is. And I mean, you know, not to get also into lost like it. presidential Democrats politics stuff, but like, 
the Hunter Biden stuff, I, I could care less about Hunter Biden, but like all Hunter Biden does is just discredit the moral <laughs> superiority of that group with anyone who has a brain in the center part of the world, right? Like, you know, the right wing people would have never cared, like, you know, thought these people were, but like, if you're like a moderate person and you're looking at like the kid glove treatment that Hunter Biden's getting, you're just kind of like, okay, like th these people are, you know, completely corrupt. And, and, and so I, I think it creates like a disaffection with, with anything mainstream culture. And then, so you, you retreat online and, and you take the funny dunks and those are actually more enjoyable than getting anything from the establishment, but whether on the right or the left. I have a question for you, Solana. With with Peter, I, I don't think I've ever seen Peter do like a sit down interview like that. Like he usually does, like I would I would say is like he he does the either writes something or he gives a talk or he kind of compares the two. He's done a couple, yeah, he's done a couple. Uh, I think he did something with Charlie Rose, and um, he'll he'll like randomly sit down, but it's few and far between. I think this one was he really just we we knew what we were talking about. This wasn't some kind of uh, yeah, it wasn't a real interview, I would even say. It was more like a structured discussion on this thing. And so um, I think he just, he's really hard on, I've, I mean, cause working with him, my earliest days with him were working on stuff like this, like him delivering thoughts in yep. long form and, uh, and in public speaking. And so the, it was this class at Stanford was basically like, I think 12 different, like really beautiful, long, like hour and a half lectures. And um, he's just really hard on himself. And so I, I think that this is like, he's a perfectionist and he just wants to make sure that everything gets out correctly. This is a topic he's been thinking a lot about and, uh, and he was down. So it was a comfortable environment and, and that was that. Son, a minute ago, were you, were you trying to, were you implying that you know, the TikTok stuff represents to you this idea that there's kind of like an inter-left war or kind of the, the left that we've understood for the last you know, five years or so is getting competed from like within the left? I'm springing up that to say that I think that the left is not what the left was five years ago. Like, I think it's just a very different place now and they don't have a control of culture. And TikTok is my window into that world because I still see all that crazy stuff. Like it's, it's, it's all mixed in there. And the way that I, on Twitter, that's all I used to see. And now it's like, I, I see like Elon, like yeah. e Elon <laughs> universe stuff. Um, TikTok is a mix of, of it all. And, and so what I'm saying is, this is my evidence. You know, I have multiple platforms. So threads is like threads really feels like old Twitter to me, but like still less, less scary, like less, like, like the less, like let's mob and destroy people. But like the politics are roughly the same. Um, whereas TikTok is a mix. And so everything, everywhere that I look, um, it's just not as bad as it was a few years ago. And, uh, it's not as monolithic, I guess. Um, it seems like there's just, uh, to play on the title of uh, the book I did the retrospective on, there's a little bit more diverse, real diversity, I would say. It, it's ironic because, so we've just been sort of talking about the vibe shift of the last you know, few years since 2020, but it's also, you know, talking about diversity, it's also interesting to remember that the whole DEI kind of um, sort of, you know, consolidation or spread within within tech, it feels like it just happened within a few years. Sort of the, the Tracy Chow, um, Ellen Powell, Erica Joy. Sort Wait, of what happened in a few years that they grabbed the power or that they lost it? Because by my read, both. they don't have it at all anymore. Yeah, uh, both. But 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 in, two, in like, it feels like they made DEI a thing at every single company in tech in early 2010s or and with yeah. venture capital. Um, you know, venture capital, did. yeah, didn't used to have all this guilt about just being white men all the time. 
um but it it it, it did um and it had just happened really quickly with with no pushback basically where and not not just diversity and inclusion but also equity and what does equity mean you know <laughs> i mean i think that they were riding a wave that was just much bigger than them they they were just the they cap in the same way honestly that i think to a certain extent probably all of us in this group have benefited from the counter wave like we we're we're we've been our who we are for a long time it's just like once culture aligns a little more with you you have a, a huge swell of support that you can ride to prominence and but like accidentally right like i'm just being i'm just talking about shit i've always been interested in and it's more it's resonating now in a way that it didn't used to and uh like i i think back to those those the, the sort of dark era the tracy chow days and um <laughs> like that was just a different culture that's that's what that was like look at their engagement now they don't have no one gives a shit about any of those people ellen powell she lost her lost her trial and uh and it was framed as a victory and i think everybody knew that was bullshit and today where is she why isn't she in the 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 rolling stone timnit gebru uh fantasy edition of whatever like there are these, these sort of like fake celebrities still exist but not those those people like the early sort of like pure social justice activist people gone zerp <laughs> they haven't pivoted to ai safety yet perhaps Let's get into the, the interview a bit, Solana. It's broken down into into four parts: economics, um, you know, science, technology, politics, and, and religion. Maybe you can encapsulate just a, a little bit of each Teal's uh, Teal's main points or what, what you found most interesting. Yeah, so I want to be just preface by saying like I hate speaking for him, so you should just watch the interview and get it right. Like he says this stuff, and he'll say it better than I did. Um, but roughly, it's like. Uh, let's say with science. So he talks about the stagnation. We, we all sort of knew there was this crazy politicization of the humanities. And that's, that's where people focus. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, the gender studies or whatever. And that's really this bad thing. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's like way worse what happened in science. Like when you have that, so when you have that in humanities, who cares if you, humanities doesn't really matter. Like if you could control all delete you, the humanities from American colleges and like we would still go on. Uh, but science, you know, historically, that's where um, a lot of our research and development took place up until, and he'll talk about this like uh, the 80s, right? Like, or even maybe a little bit before that. Um, but in the 80s is when it becomes really obvious because that's when like the big, huge uh, science uh, departments didn't matter at all. What mattered was computer science and no one was studying that. And and it's like, that's that's like a very huge fundamental change between how things used to uh, take place in America. You think back to like nuclear physics and things like this, and we just saw Oppenheimer. Um, so he's like, you know, the, 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 the sort of diversity conversation in that orbit was like sort of stagnating. And then uh, economics, I thought was really interesting. He talks about how, you know, everything is more equitable and yet everyone is worse off. And it's like, wait, like the people who were supposed to be like, you know, you just, you talk about like black people, white people, whatever, like, like the wealth gap has never been more extreme and uh, you know, people can't buy a house and whatnot. And here he made a kind of interesting argument that is somehow both like, he touches on Marxism and libertarianism. Um, and he, he frames it as sort of like, they've both been uh, in a way countered in, in the world of, of DEI. Um, the left has sort of shot themselves in the foot on, on economics uh, in favor of this other thing. And maybe there, there are moments like, in, he talks about Walmart, um, you know, you aren't paying your workers a living wage 
but you're running, you know, this whole DEI Black Lives Matter program or whatever. Um, it's like, okay, they matter, but they don't matter enough to pay a living wage. Um, it's like the, the living wage used to be the conversation that that used to be what the left was. And it, it's sort of totally stagnated. Um, faith is uh, more complicated. And it's like, he's, it's like, I'm not going to get this right, but I mean, we're not a religious country anymore. Um, and he just talks about the decline of God. He talks about, uh, it's sort of interconnecting all of these would be the, the concept of uh, simulated realities and um, uh, the multiverse, which are sort of atheistic in his mind and um, not, there's really no scientific evidence supporting them at all. And yet they become like these faith concepts that we believe in. And he thinks it's like a complete debasement of, of sort of both the categories of religion and, uh, and physics. So science. And then the last one is politics. And he's like, you know, behind all of this is the same struggle that was the same struggle that we've had for the last 70 years plus or whatever, which is communism. Um, and uh, it's like, when you say, when you hear the words DEI, all you should really think of is the CCP. Like this is the, this is the fight that we've lost track of while we've been destroying ourselves on uh, culture war stuff. Well, it's, it's ethno-communism, right? Communism came to the United States in racial form, uh, unlike a class form like it did in Europe, effectively. Interesting. I, I had a bunch of questions about the Teal thing. Can I get into those, Eric? Please. <laughs> and, I, and I know, Salah, you're not speaking for Teal, so I don't want to make you be like his defender or his, his, his explainer. But it, his piece, um, not that you should go watch the interview, obviously, but the, in, in, this, in this piece, in the, I, I really focus on the religious part of the interview, and I read, obviously, the, the piece in, in the New Criterion. And it's funny, after I read that piece, and potentially after they watched the video, I literally got emails from two different Jewish people saying, what's going on here? He's totally misreading the Bible. <laughs> Because he, um, and just to repeat a little bit, what, what, although I broadly agree with them, to be clear, what, what Peter is saying is that, like, look, if you look at the Judeo-Christian foundations of civilization, there's obviously this focus on, the, on victimhood, right? That ju the Judeo-Christian moral worldview was unlike all the pagan worldviews that preceded it, which obviously worshipped the wealthy, the strong, the successful, right? In some sense, there was a moral inversion in which it turns out the, the victim has a dignity, right? Now, in my opinion, he sort of muddles the difference between the, the Judaic and, and the Christian point of view. Um, for example, he cites that the, the Christian, uh, the Jewish, man, Freudian slip, the, the Jewish exodus story is a little bit of the beginning of, oh, the, Jew, the, Jewish, the Jews being this minority people escaping the thing. I, I wouldn't read the exodus story that way. Um, and I, I don't think actually most Jews. He also cites the Cain and Abel story, um, and he contrasts it with the Romulus and Rebus story, which is the pagan story, in which case Romulus kills his brother and founds the great city, while in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain is is morally reprimanded by God for having killed his brother, right? So there's two different fratricides and the different moral reactions to that. And what he's saying is that in some sense, and it seems to me, t tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that, that Peter, as I think many people on the right are, are torn between the overweening victimhood of, the, of where the Judeo-Christian framework has gotten us, and then the reply to that, which is this sort of knee-jerk, neo-Nietzschean, Bronze Age pervert business of just rejecting victimhood altogether, which he rejects, to be clear, and he explicitly rejects in, in his piece. And I reject too, by the way. Um, but it seems that like, and this is what my, my, my reaction piece to it is about, really, which is, you, it seems to me you have lots of Christian conservatives who reject the woke framework, yet who, who remain stolid Christians, and it seems to me Peter is that as well, but they kind of don't know what to do, right? Like they can't get off the gospel bus and say, screw the victims, because of course that's, that's a core part of Christianity. On the other hand, it seems to me, and of course maybe I would say this, the shofar is behind me, Christianity doesn't give you a reply to that drive for ever more social justice around ever more victimhood. You, you can't really say, you know what, we're not going to give a shit about 
designated victim X, right? Like it's hard to reply to that, right? And so that seems to me the bind that Teal was in, in, in that piece. He's not though in a bind, I would say. I think that you're maybe used to speaking to a lot of Christians who are not actually Christian or they're not as earnestly Christian as they say they are. What people often get wrong about Peter is he really is just a Christian and he believes in it. And I think his, his response to the woke, like, what do you do with the wokeness thing? Because that's a victim thing or whatever. It's like, you're just, just be Christian. Like he's just actually Christian. This is the, don't do the, don't do the sort of uh, the, the antichrist version of Christianity. Just be a, go to church and be a Christian. Uh, Christians believe in forgiveness. So like you, ha- you can, you can yeah. exist in a world of victims and forgiveness. Wokeness. I mean, there are a million. He, he, I, I believe he goes through a, a few of the core differences in in, uh, in the talks. Sorry, we filmed it a handful of months ago. Um, but uh, forgiveness, I think, is like the right there. It, it's it's right there in the center. And then also the hierarchy is is really weird. Like um, so within the sort of wokeness or diversity, like you have this strange hierarchy of of uh, of the victim, which doesn't exist in Christianity and um, and and there are a lot of differences, but I would say those two just right off of the bat, like, what do you do with wokeness? You just don't go to the, to the, to the false God. You, you worship the real, the real Christian God, um, is what he does. I mean, that's what, that's, he's really a Christian. So it's not, it's, you, you say he's torn. He's not torn at all. Like he has no issue with it. It's like, he, he understands when it comes to the bat people, the bronze age pervert people, like the new Nietzschean right wing thing, like, uh, the anti-victim people. He understands where they're coming from. He's not mad about it, but he's not conflicted about it. He doesn't see anything really. He, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't seem, from my view, sitting with him and talking about this stuff, he does not seem conflicted about this at all. Well, right. Well, he, he, he calls wokeness a, a heretical form of Christianity, right? I think he uses the actual word. Her- I mean, I would, I would use the word heresy, which I agree with. It, it takes elements of, of the Christian ethos, but then doesn't take some of the beautiful parts of the Christian ethos, which is grace and charity and forgiveness. Salvation, salvation right? No, no, I, I completely agree. And it clearly is a twisted form of Christianity. But I, it, you know, it's funny. I, he mentions Gerard in his thing. I know he's a serious Gerard scholar. And I was rereading um, what I consider to be Gerard's most clearest book, which is I, I Saw Satan Fall Like, like Lightning. And Gerard dedicates an entire chapter to victimhood. And in fact, Gerard in some sense concedes that we're living in, in the age of victimhood and that in some sense Christianity could potentially go off the rails. But I, I guess, yeah, his reaction seems to be very similar to what Peter seems to be, which is, well, just be a proper Catholic. And, and, the pro- <laughs> and, then, and then the problem isn't quite as big, which maybe I guess that's... Right, Peter's yeah, a Protestant and I oh, never well, asked yeah. him about the, <laughs> the, the sort of... He seems, I mean, he makes, because I, I, I used to talk about my Catholic, sort of upbringing and I was sort of clinging to it still. And, and he would make fun of it sometimes in a playful way. So I, I know that he's very Protestant. I mean, he's too capitalist to be Catholic. Let's face it. Just yeah. <laughs> <Protestants> <laughs> do capitalism better. <laughs> yeah. And, and his view on the Nietzschean right wing people is that they, they don't sort of acknowledge the, the badness of the past enough. Well, they don't. They, he's like, yeah. you know, their version of it is like, so uh, you're sort of moderate rep- Republican historically, like, yes, you know, we did these bad things, but um, it was a long time ago and and we need to move on. And uh, the the left-wing version of it, the woke left-wing version of it is like, yes, we did these bad things, but it's still who we are and we can't move on and we need to like dismantle the whole system. And the Nietzschean right-wing thing of it is like, yes, we did these bad things, and also they weren't wrong. <laughs> like, like we're like we're better and uh, it doesn't matter that we did all these things. And he finds that to be um, in a weird way, like he, I find that he's been 
because he gets, he gets all this, he always gets in trouble for talking to people, like having dinner with people or whatever. But he's like, when I hear, he's harder on those people, I would say, than he is on on the on the woke people. I think because it's like the wokeness stuff just feels so stupid that it's hard to take it serious, even while it dominates, you know, <laughs> culturally. You're just like, but it's so dumb. People can't really believe this stuff, right? Um, whereas the Nietzschean stuff, it, it like feels maybe a little more alive. But he's like very understanding of why you would feel that at this point, like just in strong reaction to being told that you're terrible for so long. But, um, but probably like we were bad and we should be better and, and you need to be forgiven and, and sort of move on and make a better world. As an additional comment on the, on the Neo-Nietzscheans or dare I call them the Baptists? Can I say that? <laughs> I just, I'm just coining that term. Um, they definitely don't, they don't, they don't acknowledge the, the bad. I mean, it's all a LARP. So like, whatever, like, I don't believe any of them. They have no constituency and it's all a fucking LARP, but just to take it seriously for one quick little second. I mean, w once you remove the individual dignity of the human, right. And say certain classes of humans contain the spark of God or the image of God to use the Catholic faith and certain ones don't down that road lie unimaginable horrors <laughs> of which we've seen plenty in the 20th century, right? And so I don't know how anybody could even take the philosophy seriously on, on, on the face of it. And no one actually wants to live in a, in a neo-pagan reality, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I think it's just, there's something really intoxicating for, I, I remember as we probably all had this experience, it's like teenage boys, you pick up as white, teenage white boys, you pick up like, this implicit sense that you're there's something bad about you and when someone starts to tell you like no you're great you that's really 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 intoxicating when someone yeah. you just feel you can feel very liberated by that and then radicalized by it and so i understand where the baptists are i for sure understand where they're coming from when you're just so sick and tired of being told that you and everyone like you through history is evil that you just turn it around completely. You're like, no, we were good and we've always done good and everything we've done has been good and we're going to do more like it. And the only problem today is that we're not more like we were. The things that you're saying are bad. There's a version of this, honestly, in a, a little bit of like Yarvin, Yarvin stuff too, where it's like you, like the way to rule is to do everything they say you are actually, um, which is, and I don't want to bring, because Yarvin's not one of, he's like his own unique thing that I think is very interesting. And um, But who, who's Yarvin? Well, I thought maybe wanted to say mold bug on this podcast yeah, only. <laughs> oh, I vaguely heard of him. I vaguely heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I get I get it. Yeah, I get I I get it completely. I also think it's like like you said it's it does feel like a larp because no one yeah. no one is going to be is anyone does anyone find this stuff compelling? It's a little bit of like Dan and I before we started we're talking about um like surrogacy and things like this and these people jump up and they have really strong opinions about things like that which okay, I'm you can have a strong opinion about that, but where is it really coming from? How many of these people even have kids? Like they were talking about families. Like, do they have families? Are they married? Is Bap married? Does he have kids? Like it, it feels, that uh, feels like a, like a no to me. Yeah. I, I think on the constituency thing, that's my biggest issue with all, all of the Anon discourse is like, Oh, like, look at this, like, you know, provocative opinion or that this podcast interview, this or that. It like, okay. Like, who are you influencing? Right. It's like, I think Curtis is probably the most influential in that, like, you listen to a DeSantis and you kind of squint enough and you kind of hear the administrative state cathedral thing. But that's also, at this point, I, I don't think, you know, it might have started or, or kind of Curtis might have been pushing it, but it, that's in a long history of, you know, Burnham and, and all this other kind of stuff. So 
I, I just feel like like who 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 is the best politician representing that constituency today? Presidential candidate, elected official. I, I don't think one exists, right? I think Viv- Tucker Tucker is Vivek. the closest thing. I think Vivek. No way. No, yeah, but I think, he's, I think he's PMC all the way through. He was a Soros. Like, did you see this thing that came up this week? I mean, that now the op the oppo is coming out. Yeah, he was funded by Soros, you know, back when he was a Harvard or Yale guy. Literally funded by Soros. Literally. I mean, this is like, okay. Like, you know, sorry, just, but like he seems like every I mean, when he when he came out against the bank the bank stuff, uh, it's just like, okay, I know what kind of conservative you are. You're just you're just another like free market obsessed, like let the banks fail, let the whole country collapse, we have to restart. And it's like I understand all that stuff intellectually. But in one one, they pick and choose which versions of that of that philosophy they want to they want to go up in. The only person who ever was like a purist about it for even a second was Rand Paul when he was standing up there like like waffling on the issue of should black people be allowed to eat at restaurants if a white owner doesn't want them to, and he's over there trying to be like a pure anarcho capitalist about it, and it's like that shit does not. That's like it's crazy. We, no one wants to live in that world. And um, but but to his credit, he was at least like living that. Like he was like really trying to rep the purity of that philosophy, like to, to total intellectual consistency of like pure freedom. Um, Vivek's not doing that. He's like picking and choosing which ones. The reason he he was okay with the bank failure in Silicon Valley was because people in Silicon Valley are not popular. It was an obvious um, witch burning moment and. Uh, and so I just, I've seen people like him before. I don't understand why people like him. I like him a lot less than DeSantis. Um, and, uh, and I feel bad for DeSantis. I mean, that's a whole other story. He's totally fallen off. Um, I mean, Trump's but just going to be president. I, but I think like to your point about, uh, Ron, uh, Ron Paul. So if you were to just take presidential candidates in the last 20 years, I, I'd be curious, like what others think. If, if you want to actually say distinct intellectual movements, um, and intellectual maybe is a, a generous word here, but in terms of like, you can actually lump them into something that is different than the quote establishment, both on the left and the right is Ron Paul. Yes. Right. And, and I actually think a lot of what you see in, in crypto Bitcoin, like, like that is a, a strain of, of that and, and made some amount of progress. I think Bernie Sanders, yes. like true to, to what Bernie Sanders stands for and Trump. And then everything else is just basically some establishment, you know, version, configure a few beliefs here. And you're either an establishment Republican or an establishment um, Democrat. And like, you know, Liz Warren is like, you know, pretends to be Bernie Sanders. But the reality is she's just, you know, kind of part of the machine. And and so like th- th- that's where we are in the country. Like th- those are the, the so when people are like, oh, BAP, like, you know, is leading a movement or Yarvin. It's like, OK, like which which one of those. Well, Trump, I guess they, you would say Trump, Trump. not really. Trump, Trump is like Obama makes fun of him at the White House Correspondents Dinner. And basically it's like it's like a, a spite store presidency. Like he he basically was like, fuck you, I'm going to go run. And then, you know, just rode a wave of populist. But I mean, he, he was at the Clinton daughter wedding. Like, I mean, he he's not a like an actual like deeply rooted in some intellectual movement. It was like pure power his, grab. And obviously extremely he, successful. He does seem to represent that that like branch of right wing stuff, I think reasonably well um, when, when you see him. Uh, so I guess I, I think about Tucker as just completely formed by Trump. Like Tucker just saw Trump and was like, yes, I'm going to, this is, I'm just going to do Trump. He's, he just did the media version of Trump. 
Um, and I think he did it very well, but he was the opposite of Megyn Kelly, right? Like he's just like, I'm going to do this other thing and, and like tap into this stuff and, and represent it. And so when Tucker is talking about self-driving cars with Ben Shapiro, that to me is the moment where he's very clearly distinct. And um, it's like to come out so strongly against it is that feels like a, maybe I'm giving too much credit to BAP right now, but like that, that feels like a Bronze Age pervert, like Nietzschean right wing, populist right wing, tapping into something else that's, that's uh, maybe an older, one of the old gods of the right wing. Well, I think, I think Tucker blew himself up with the, the Russia stuff. Like, I, I think he actually lost a, a constituency that used to be in his. I think he had a huge constituency. The pro, right? the pro Russia stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, and I, and I, you know, I don't think Trump. Like, I, anyone who's supporting Trump can just ignore like whatever Trump says. They're just they're there for the guy. Um, but I do think Tucker isolated a, a chunk of people who were following him when he kind of went towards the the Putin. Yeah, I think so too. Like, I mean, it's into this day. I mean, that stuff is still infecting. The right like you you it just and it manifests in like really sort of just in it, it like it's the kind of thing that you, you can't you can't sit the the average moderate will never sit with and the average even republican will never sit with it's really hard you like so much of the right wing is informed by patriotism and and nationalism and like a it's hard to go in to go all in on such like a clear enemy of the country and, and like survive that um and uh yeah i i think it's a really astute point. i agree with that, that that the russia stuff definitely dragged him down more so than the fox new stuff which probably he probably lost fox right because of this yeah yeah I, I think that the just going back to the intellectual movements that have constituencies i think antonio is the one always to bring this up in a group chat where we have people we know who will argue though the ideas matter or whatever but the reality is like you you need you need to have that idea attached to a host and a host that can actually drive some amount of political power. I think that there was a moment where people were like, with this DeSantis reelection, where you know, sixty percent of the state, it was like, okay, sh this this is like the second coming of Reagan. He's like kind of still in the Trump camp, a little bit more polished, not not a little bit more more polished in in some regards, more wonky, like. And then he's just completely blown up. And, and, you know, maybe that's the charisma thing or just not good campaigner. But it's just so the the disconnect between how well he's done in Florida and and, and the national stage, that was actually quite surprising to me. Um, but, yeah, I don't maybe know. Maybe it shouldn't Florida be surprising to any of us because when you think back to his election, right, he wins the state by 60 percent. I was in Miami for that election. And, I mean, we were going like the polls were people were excited for him. And uh, and for the red wave in general, and then that doesn't manifest anywhere else but Florida. And so the the nation is just in a, it's like maybe in a little bit of a different place. I have no idea though. I could not even begin to diagnose what what has gone wrong with DeSantis's campaign. When he announced, I really felt like there was going to be something there. Well, the thing is, at the state level, you win based on results, and at the national level, you win based on perception, right? Mm -hmm. Florida is doing very well, right? It has the number; it's been the number one domestic immigration state alongside Texas for the past I don't know how many years. People like Florida, right? There's, there's high-speed rail in fucking Florida, and there isn't in California, right? <laughs> like things have gone. Miami is booming. I mean, not in a tech perspective necessarily. I know Mike doesn't love Miami, but like broadly speaking, Florida is doing pretty well as a state, yeah. right? And like, it's hard to look at that and say, oh, that's, that's been a failure compared to other state examples you could cite. But yeah, it's sad. It, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's I think that Elon, like, he's not going to run for office and, you know, think what you want of him. But there was that poll, like, you'd be the most popular political figure in the country. I think what people are craving is, is competence, um, 
and someone who actually can do 21st century mimetic warfare. And I actually think so many of these politicians, and I think this is where people underestimate Trump, is Trump runs his own media strategy. And just by virtue of being Trump, there is a level of authenticity. You know, you can say what you want about Trump, whether you believe it, but it's it, you're getting Trump. And I think the thing that Vivek, I'll give him credit for, is it does feel like he's he's driving the way he's doing these kind of media moments, sound clips, things that are going viral, his Twitter account. And I think most of the other Republican field is still mired in this 20th century political machine that, you know, like you just have all the advisors and you do everything. And, and, and the reality is, I think what people are craving is like, am I getting the, the person behind this in, in a world where Elon is firing off missives, just like Trump on Twitter. And, and you, you know, you're getting the, the immature, flawed human behind that. And a whole bunch of people find that really infuriating and then a bunch of people think that that's great. And so I, I, I think that like that is the thing that I'm most surprised about. And this thing I'm most scared about personally is I think AOC completely understands that. And when she's ready to go for broke, like I think she's going to be really formidable because she's not going to have any intermediary. She's going to be the, the, the candidate that you want to see. And, and she's going to be really successful, I think, with that. I think that it's going to be in the vein of that, but it's going to be someone who is like the real, it's like a, a young Bernie Sanders who is totally. attractive and charismatic and strong and vicious. Like, like I, I think that's the world that that's the danger. I think that's, that's the, that's the really, that's the big bad. The candidate that can ratio like anyone on Twitter without having to go to their staffer and whether the staffers helping, you know, throw some ideas out, but the person who could pick up their phone, see the reply, this is what's happening on Twitter, takes them 30 seconds to come up with that one just banger reply, things that you guys do all the time, that candidate is just going to steamroll. Like it'll, it, the constituency will just form around them very fast because they're, they're internet native. Internet native is, can you dunk? Can you quote tweet? Can you, can you reply guy uh, in a way that you just ratio the original post and make them look? You think Trump's going to, he's coming back to Twitter. Is he going to win? <laughs> I think I, I, I'm I'm convinced that he's going to be running from a jail cell next November, like election <laughs> night. He's going to be in jail and I, he'll, he'll embrace it. He'll like I don't want the guy. Again. Like this is my life is just going to get worse having to listen to people complain about him. But the dude is going to be running from jail. And like somehow people think that that that's going to like stop him from winning. Like it's probably going to help. No. Yeah, it'll definitely help. And then also also if if he runs from jail, if he wins. He can pardon himself, right? In theory, you can't pardon on a state crime. But I mean, like, honestly, if he wins from jail, like you, you're talking about like threat to democracy. Shit, shit's going to go down if he's in jail and he wins. Uh, and some like Georgia, Georgia, like sheriff is trying to come and get him. That You want to talk about constitutional crisis? There you go. I never thought about the self part. That's like autoerotic self-pardoning. Can you do that as a president? <laughs> I guess you I can guess do it for can. federal crimes. Yeah, man. And, well, I mean, way, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's undetermined law, right? I don't think any president's had to do that. <laughs> so and, crazy. And, and by the way, if people think the prison thing is crazy. Miami is the city of the future. The, the mayor of Hialeah, one of the suburbs of Miami, once ran from jail and won. And, um, but so Buddy Cianci. Buddy Cianci yeah. had it figured out. He's you know, a corrupt uh, mayor of Providence, went to federal prison for whatever, and then he came back and, and, and I think he either won again. And then the other thing is he had a... Uh, Prior, prior to podcast, he had the most popular morning talk show in Rhode Island. Every single person would listen to Buddy Cianci. Like, it's just like that, that 
that is such an era of of the machine politics that like we don't have an appreciation for for now. And I think like when you see Trump, like people don't appreciate that's that's how much more it it, it was. Yeah. And and we're we're just reverting back to the meme. Going back to, to Teal for a second, some people are, are saying, you know, many people are saying <laughs> to, to quote Trump that many such Teal, cases. Yeah, exactly. The Teal is kind of abandoning or or backing away a little bit from the anti woke cause that he helped, you know, or that he was early to right at the height of its ascendancy um, as this vibe shift is happening. And some people are, you know, speculating that perhaps he, um, you know, he's just a natural contrarian, and so moves to where the the alpha is and being contrarian, or or maybe it's because he senses this right is very extreme on on certain things, like maybe you know some of them are anti-gay, and, it, and obviously Peter, um, you know, is gay, um, and you know the things we're talking about here of just like he thinks they've they've lost their way, perhaps, or, or, and and it's just diversion from the things that really matter, like like China, like the economy. No, um, I th- it's fun. like people always have. Uh... People are always speculating on. I think I think there's always this assumption that Peter has some like that he knows everything, and that or that he thinks he knows everything, and in, and he's actually like completely the opposite of that. He's the most, uh, I mean, not the most humble person I've ever met, but he's like the most humble billionaire that I've ever met. And when it comes to like his own, in, in terms of intellectual giants, he's 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 much more curious than he is interested in. Um, telling you what the world is like. And I see this at every table I've ever been at with him. He immediately is asking questions and he genuinely wants to know what other people are thinking about. Um, the only time I've ever seen him like take control of a, of a table and like now he's going to be monologuing, it's when it's awkward and like people don't have anything interesting to say. And so he'll just like do the table a favor and be Peter for 45 minutes and then like we'll move on. Um, but in general, so when it comes to these topics, for example, to bring it back to your question, um, I don't think he really, he doesn't seem to have a strong sense of any of these things right now. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what has, I have my assumptions on what has soured him on politics, but it's nothing, it's nothing ideological. He's not like, you know, he doesn't have any strong position on uh, DeSantis versus Trump and like, where the party is going or anything. He doesn't think about things like that. He is like, really, he comes at things usually very, he comes at things sideways with a strange idea. There'll be like one piece of the candidate that, that like for Trump, honestly, it was make America great again. That, the, that, the idea of that, he was like, he, that made Trump the only candidate who agreed that something had gone fundamentally wrong with America. At that point, remember back in 2015, Republicans were still like, this is the greatest country in the world. Um, and then you had Hillary Clinton. Once Trump is, says, you know, make America great again, you have Hillary Clinton, a Democrat, who was like, nothing, we don't have to make it better at all. Like it's perfect just the way it is. And so that because Trump was willing to sort of pull the curtain back and be like, no, this is like the rotting corpse of the giant that it once was. Um, that was compelling to him. And that was the thing that brought him in um, more than anything else. And I, I think that right now they're, um, I guess, again, like I really hate speaking for him. You, you, people should ask him these questions. And they, uh, but I th- if I were to sort of speculate, I would say that he hasn't seen that interesting thing from anybody yet. And so he's not excited about the machine broadly. He's, um, I think he's looking for something to be excited about right now. The, the, Thing about the woke stuff, if we just to take it from Peter and just like my point of view is if like uh, to use a Tyler Cohen, is it like underrated, properly rated, overrated? I think it was like underrated before. And, you know, when people kind of weren't talking about it, I think it crested in 2020 
and now with you know the rufos the what, what all the stuff it's 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 properly rated right like the market yeah. equilibrium has like now you know slowly solving this red states are going to do what they want to do and, and blue states are going to pretend that that's not an issue or whatever and say algebra is racist fine like you can you can have a marketplace of ideas across all these different states but the the thing is that that doesn't resonate for a political platform and i think that that's one of the things that you're seeing with the santis flaming out is like his version of the mandate of heaven from this florida victory was I'm going to ticky tack pass laws that look like I am doing stuff against woke, like Florida's universities, you can't do this. And it's like Disney and like all of this stuff that sort of plays well on Fox News. But the reality is that's not like the, the average American doesn't that doesn't impact them. Right. They see it on the news and it's kind of like more entertainment. The average American cares about like, how is the economy doing? <laughs> is there inflation? Like, how are my kids? Are my kids going to do better? And like, it's crazy to me that that just still no, because it's hard. It's like, what is the political platform that is actually just trying to drive that forward? I think you'd, you'd, you'd clean up like, and, and just, I guess like you have to win the crazies in the primary process in the party. So that's why you think you need to tack that. I mean, way. I do think, I think that the transing of America's kids is broadly compelling. And it's like, you're talking about education and things like that. It seems like that's this, this place where people on the left are really willing to, to listen and come over to. And so it's, it does feel powerful. Uh, and I think it's important, but you're, I, if it's not enough, like you definitely have to have, he should, as Antonio was saying, like, he should just run on Florida. Like it's, I kept, I kept it open during COVID done. Like, you know, you want that level of competence as the government, the, the federal government, I'm going to do that. He done. should be like, talking about, I, I mean, maybe he is, and I'm just not hearing it. It's not penetrating the sort of, internet hive mind or like swarm where I receive most of my political information. But uh, that is just like, things are going well here. Uh, high, the high speed rail thing is exciting. Like, I mean, going to war, there are a couple, like the woke thing, when it takes you to war with Disney, that was really, uh, that felt very cringy to me. It was like, first of all, I loved, I'm not trying to like go to war with Disney. Like, I don't want to see it. I, it's, yeah, the well, they're also doing annoying. the Snow White thing. So it, Disney's not helping themselves, but yeah. I No, they're not. I agree. They, they drag it's, themselves it's a stupid battle, stupid battle. Don't, like, don't fight with Disney. But Florida is, Disney's still a major employee, uh, a major Florida employer. And it's like, that city is very important to the economy of Florida. It, it seemed to me like separate from the culture war piece, it seemed like he was attacking his own state a little bit to me. And that felt weird. It's like the opposite. You should be running yeah. on your state. I wonder if it's as simple as what you said. He just can't meme. Like every day we see Vivek, you know, take some big state, you know, take a hot take on the biggest uh, issue of the day. And we just don't see DeSantis. But, but Vivek, Vivek or, uh, he, he's a six out of 10 memer or seven. It might like, be only, I just find him so annoying. You guys but he's better than the other ones. But Trump, Trump is a 10 out of 10 memer. Right. Like he does a tweet and he does the capitalization, he does whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, boom, you've just <laughs> annihilated the news cycle. And so it's just like good. he's good at memes. Right. AOC, good at memes like that. Good. Like that. That's that's politicians in the 21st century with everyone, you know, addicted to their phones. Like be good at memes. Funny <laughs> memes. Right. Like not not like cringe memes. Hire Martin Shkreli as your uh, you know, meme in residence. <laughs> World War meme. <laughs> I do want to close out uh, by Something you alluded earlier, Solana. We just let's talk about Teal's legacy um, for 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 ten minutes or so. I'll, I'll sort of take a stab to set the conversation, and Mike, I want to hear from you. Like the way I, I think about Peter's history, and obviously, you know, I'm I'm an outsider here, but you know, Peter, 
you know, Stanford, Stanford Review, Diversity Myth, which we've talked about, you know, then creates this iconic company in PayPal with the whole PayPal mafia. Um, then, you know, after the success of that, starts his big hedge fund, uh, Clarium, um, and, you know, runs that for a while. And that has sort of some success, but also some some troubles, um, sort of rebrands in the mid 2000s, late 2000s as a... Uh, you know, uh, a venture capitalist, uh, you know, angel investor, uh, he had been the whole time, but, but leans into it, you know, has iconic successes like Facebook, um, you know, the iconic, you know, founders fund, uh, you know, Palantir, uh, SpaceX, many successes and becomes like a, you know, unquestionably successful as a, as an investor, putting the Clarium thing way behind him, um, and works with people like you and many dozens of others for decades, totally making their careers. They go on to do incredible things um, and credit their success to Peter. Also, it makes iconic bets early on, things that are very controversial, like uh, you know, charter cities with seasteading, longevity, uh, higher education with the, the 20 yeah, or 20, 20 things or 20. that were things that were you know destroyed at the time and now you know commonplace. And then also a number of intellectual contributions in terms of popularizing Gerard popularizing the sort of stagnation thesis. Uh, I think, you know, anti-wokeness, obviously the big Trump bet, uh, you know, uh, taking down Gawker, uh, uh, sort of nuanced critiques of, uh, of, of democracy in that famous essay or, or libertarianism, even um, of, of a broken kind of cultural problem in the West at the same time when people think that, you know, too much tech is the problem he, he, or too much progress. He's saying not enough progress. And that would become, you know, sort of more commonplace in a decade. Um, what would you edit or add to that, Mike? How do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that it's funny. I don't ever, I don't often think of, you don't often see a list like that, right? Like when you list it out, it's really, it's amazing what he's done. I think I've always felt that Peter is like the main guy in tech. I think he's the one that, that first of all, I love that he's not on Twitter. Um, he just exists separately. He he doesn't like lower himself into the mud and I'm like, that's fine. Like I'll live there. I'll do all the mud slinging <laughs> that needs to be thrown from the sewers, like stay out of there. Yeah. You see in, there are so many people who um, like, even when he's not spoken, when people are, people are either for him or against him during the Trump years, you really saw this. The fact that he came out for Trump was like, it was um, psychologically, damaging to a lot of people like people had these crazy crises of identity um trying to grapple with that and that's because they care so much about what he thinks so many people who 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 like don't like him really care what he thinks about them what he thinks about the world everything he says becomes a story and you see there this is a weird one and i don't want to name any names because it's really rude and but there are many leaders in tech now sort of prominent figures who they mimic like his cadence, the way that he speaks. Um, I've seen people mimic the way that he walks literally on a stage. He has this kind of, I don't, but I think that he will be remembered as the intellectual leader of the, uh, of the 21st century, early 21st century in the technology industry and a major intellectual leader of um, uh, a major polit like a uh, intellectual leader in the world of politics. Um, I think one of the most interesting legacies you alluded to a second ago, when you talk about people he's worked with and then something like the 20 under 20, it's like how many, my favorite thing about him actually is, uh, there are two. One is his curiosity, his genuine curiosity and what other people are thinking about. That's how he finds so many interesting ideas. It's like he actually listens and he cares. He has no ego in this regard. Um, 
what's one of the ways that he's come up with so many interesting things. But but the other is he's a great mentor and he's always recruiting, always. I, he's, there's never a moment that he's not looking to meet interesting people who he can work with um, and, and help and support. And uh, he's just like, I think that it's like the people around him. It's, it's like one, the fact that everybody wants to be like him, even if they don't admit it. And then two, it's the careers that he's created. And I think that's what he'll be known for. I, I would, I would add my two biggest things. I think he did um, one take down Gawker because I, I think like, I don't know, that just doesn't happen very often. And that was a pretty important American institution at, at that a new institution that I did not think was was doing good in the world. It was, if anything, it was tearing people down for doing things. Um, and so the fact that he took that down, I think, is probably net positive. Uh, and then I think zero to one, I mean, will be the thing that people remember him for. Like compared to any other business book, I mean, it's it's the I think the only intellectually interesting one, maybe outside of, you know, some of like Clayton Christensen or a few things like that. But like, this is, but this is like a pr practitioner, like actually in, in the arena. And so to get a work of kind of philosophy and, and business out, I think is, you know, that, that 50 years from now, people will probably still read that book. Just a quick note on the Gawker thing. The only time I ever had breakfast with Peter was right after like the day of, or the day after the, the Gawker thing came out and he, he he was getting vilified for it, um, yeah. and he, he said that privately he he he'd never gotten more praise for something. <laughs> this is like of anything he's ever did, um, and it's just that cognitive dissonance was fascinating. Well, last thought on that because it's, it it ties into the college thing, and it ties into uh, there are various t things in, in the world of like spaces and technology and, and trends and whatnot. What Peter is really amazing at identifying in, in terms of concepts or ideas or positions is like the thing that people actually care about, but can't say, um, or won't say. And Gawker was one of these things. It's like, he finds these points where the, like people are actually on board with the topic, but it's like this small group of people who are controlling the discourse who are not. And, uh, it's like a thing that feels really terrifying to go and speak on. But if you just do it, if you have some courage, actually, like you'll have a tremendous amount of support behind you. And um, I've seen him do that in politics and in tech, like throughout my entire time that I've known him. Um, everything from, I mean, obviously the Trump stuff had enormous support, even in Silicon Valley, specifically on like the China topic, which nobody was talking about before Trump was running for office. Uh, and then to go back further, the 20 under 20, right? College. This is something that was unthinkable at the time among a certain class of person. But the average person who heard it was like, oh yeah, something's totally rotten in the world of academia. Like this entire machine is coming down. It can't last. And, uh, and I think that's a really unique gift that he has intellectually is to just, it's like the noise of people he does not hear. He just looks at the things and says the obvious truth. Larry Summers called the 20 to 20, like the most misguided use of philanthropy in history or some, something. <laughs> That's my guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the former, the former president of Harvard would think that of course. Yeah. <laughs> one of, uh, one of Teal's uh, recent lines is, uh, if you can't talk about it, if, if people won't let you talk about it, you should assume it's true or something. That's a good note to wrap on, on Teal. But before we wrap the episode, I just want to plug pirate wires really quick because Solana, you just, uh, I believe you hit your three-year anniversary of starting Pirate Wires, um, over a hundred you know, personal issues in. 
give, give us a little bit of uh, of where's Pirate Wires right now. What 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 can people expect? You, you launched a new show recently that's, that people should moments then should check out. What, what well, I've just been it? hiring, so I'm just doing more of what I used to do. It's like I'm the, what I'm doing now is I'm Pirate Wires. Up until recently, has just been me, you know, and and like it's like me with a mega, me, megaphone, um, blasting my opinion out there into the universe. And like I'm still doing that, and that's still kind of the like the that's like the flagship Pirate Wires. But uh, hiring more people and sort of taking that perspective into our analysis of just like broad tech coverage, um, like aspirational science technology stuff. We're going to get into politics. Eventually, we'll have our own like political vertical. I want to do like health and fitness and things like this. But um, it's just like more of what we've been doing all along. So yeah, piratewires.com. Check it out. Awesome. Uh, well, we'll be excited to, to have you back soon. Uh, Salon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.